Hello and welcome to the first episode of Sacred Days Keep Reading. I'm sorry if I got that title wrong, but this is my first ever podcast. I'm 13, it's exactly 8.58pm, and I'm in my bedroom. So, thought we might enjoy a bit of J.K. Rowling. Today's book will be Harry Potter and the Philosopher's Stone, and we'll be reading... Chapter 1, The Boy Who Lived. Mr and Mrs Dursley of number 4 Physic Line were proud to say that they were perfectly normal. Thank you very much. They were the last people you'd expect to be involved in anything strange or mysterious because they just didn't hold with such nonsense. Mr Dursley was the director of a firm called Gunning, which made grills. He was a big, beefy man with hardly any neck, although he did have a very large moustache. Mrs Dursley was thin and blonde, and had nearly twice the amount of usual neck, which came in very useful as she spent so much of her time climbing over garden fences, spying on the neighbours. The Dursleys had a small thing called Dudley, and in their opinion, there was no finer boy anywhere. The Dursleys had everything they wanted, but they also had a secret, and their greatest fear was that somebody would discover it. They didn't think they could bear it if anyone found out about the Potters. Mrs Potter was Mrs Dursley's sister, but they hadn't met for several years. In fact, Mrs Dursley pretended she didn't have a sister, her sister and her good-for-nothing husband were as undurslyish as it was possible to be. The Dursleys shuddered to think what the neighbours would say if the Potters arrived in the street. The Dursleys knew that the Potters had a small son too, but they had never even seen him. This boy was another good reason for keeping the Potters away. They didn't want Dudley mixing with a child like that. Mr and Mrs Dursley woke up on the dull grey Tuesday all stories dark. There was nothing about the crowd outside to suggest that strange and mysterious things were pursuing the happening all over the country. Mr Dursley hummed as he picked his most boring tie up for work, and Mrs Dursley scattered away happily as she rested a screaming Dudley in his high chair. None of them noticed a large tawny owl flutter past the window. At half past eight, Mr Dursley picked up his briefcase, pecked Mr Dursley in the cheek and tried to kiss Dudley goodbye, but missed, because Dudley was now having a tantrum and throwing his cereal at the wall. Little tyke, retorted Mr Dursley as he left the house, got into his car and backed out of number four's drive. It was on the corner of the street that he noticed the first sign of something peculiar. A cat reading a map. For a second, Mr Dursley didn't realise what he had seen. Then he jerked his head round to look again. There was a tabby cat standing on the corner of Pleasant Drive, but there wasn't a map in sight. What could he have been thinking of? It must have been a trick of the light. Mr Dursley blinked and stared at the cat. It stared back. As Mr Dursley drove around the corner and up the road, He watched the cat in his mirror. 
it was now reading the sign that said Cricket Drive, not looking at the sign. Cat couldn't read maps or signs. Mr. Dursley gave himself a little shake and put the cat out of his mind. As he drove towards town, he thought of nothing except a large order of bills he was hoping to get that day. But on the edge of the town, bills were driven out of his mind by something else. As he sat in the usual morning traffic jam, he couldn't help noticing that there seemed to be a lot of strangely dressed people about. People in cloaks. Mr. Dursley couldn't bear people who dressed in funny clothes. He'd get up, she saw, and jinx people. He supposed this was some stupid new fashion. He drummed his fingers on the steering wheel, and his eyes fell on a huddle of little girls standing quite close by. They were whispering excitedly together. Mr. Dursley was enraged to see that a couple of them weren't young at all. Why, that man had to be older than he was, and wearing an emerald green cloak. The nerve of him. But then it struck Mr. Dursley that this was probably some silly stunt. These people were obviously collecting for something. Yes, that would be it. The traffic moved on, and a few minutes later, Mr. Dursley arrived in the Jennings car park, his mind back on Bill's. Mr. Dursley always sat with his back to the window in his office on the ninth floor. If he hadn't, he might have found it harder to concentrate on drills that morning. He didn't see the owls swooping past in broad daylight, though people down the street did. They pointed and gazed open-mouthed as owl after owl fled overhead. Most of them had never even seen an owl at night time. Mr. Dursley, however, had a perfectly normal, owl-free morning. He yelled at five different people. He made several important telephone calls and shouted at Mark Whitmore. He was in a very good mood until lunchtime, when he thought he'd stretch his legs and walk across the road to buy himself a bun from the baker's opposite. He'd forgotten all about the people in cloaks until he passed a group of them next to the baker's. He eyed them angrily as he passed. He didn't know why, but they made him uneasy. This lot were whispering excitedly, too. And he couldn't see a single collection tin. It was on his way back past them, touching a large donut in a bag, that he caught a few words of what they were saying. The potty, that's right, that's what I heard. Yes, her son, Harry. Mr. Dursley stopped dead. Fear flooded him. He looked back at the whisperers as if he wanted to say something to them, but thought better of it. He dashed back across the road, hurried up to his office, snapped at his secretary not to disturb him. He used his telephone and had almost finished dialing the home number. When he changed his mind, he put the receiver back down and stroked his moustache, thinking, No. He was being stupid. Potter wasn't such an unusual name. He was sure there were lots of people called Potter who had a son called Harry. Come to think of it, he wasn't even sure his nephew's wife called Harry. He'd never even seen the boy. It might have been Harvey or Harold. There was no point in worrying Mrs Dursley. She always got so upset at any mention of her sister. He didn't blame her, if he'd had a sister like that. 
all the same, those people in coats. He found it a lot harder to concentrate on drills that afternoon, and when he left the building at five o'clock, he was still so worried that he walked straight into the gate outside the door. Sorry, he grunted, as the tiny old man stumbled and almost fell. It was a few seconds later before Mr. Dursley realised that the man was wearing a violet cloak. He didn't seem at all upset at being almost knocked to the ground. On the contrary, his face split into a wide smile and he said in a squeaky voice that made passers-by start, Don't be sorry, my dear sir, for nothing could upset me today. Rejoice, for you-know-who has gone at last. Even muggles like yourself should be celebrating this happy, happy day. And the old man hugged Mr. Dursley around the middle and walked off. Mr. Dursley stood rooted to the spot. He had been hugged by a complete stranger. He also thought he had been called a muggle. Whatever that was, he rattled. He hurried to his car and sat at home. Hoping he was imagining things, which he had never hoped before, because he didn't approve of imagination. As he pulled into the driveway of number four, the first thing he saw, and it didn't improve his mood, was the tabby cat he'd spotted that morning. It was now sitting on his garden wall. He was sure it was the same one, and had the same markings around its eyes. Shoo! said Mr. Dursley loudly. The cat didn't move. It just gave him a stern look. Was this normal cat behaviour? Mr. Dursley wondered. Trying to pull himself together, he let himself into the house. He was still determined not to mention anything to his wife. Mrs. Dursley had a nice, normal day. She told him all over dinner about Mrs. Next Door's problems with her daughter and how Dudley had learnt a new word. Shan't. Mrs. Dursley tried to act normally. When Dudley had been put to bed, he went into the living room in time to catch the last report on the evening news. And finally, bird watchers everywhere have reported that the nation's owls have been behaving very unusually today. Although owls usually hunt at night and are hardly ever seen in daylight, there have been hundreds of sightings of these birds flying in every direction since sunrise. Experts are unable to explain why the owls have suddenly changed their speaking pattern. The newsreader allowed himself a grin. Most mysterious. And now, over to Jim McGuffin with the weather. Going to be any more showers of owls tonight, Jim? Well, Ted, I don't know about that. But it's not only the owls that have been acting oddly today. Viewers as far apart as Kent, Yorkshire and Dundee have been phoning in to tell me that instead of the rain I promised them yesterday, they've had a downpour of shooting stars. Perhaps people have been celebrating bonfire night early. It's not until next week, folks, but I can promise a wet night tonight. Mr Dursley sat frozen in his armchair. Shooting stars all over Britain? Owls flying by daylight? Mysterious people in coats all over the place? A whisper. A whisper about the potters. Mrs Dursley came into the living room carrying two cups of tea. It was no good. He'd have to say something to her. 
the greatest fight for Navazor. <coughs> uh, Petunia, dear. You haven't heard from your sister lately, have you? As you would expected, Mrs. Dursley looked shocked and angry. After all, they normally pretended she didn't have a sister. No, she said sharply. Why? Funny stuff in the news. Owls, shooting stars, and there are a lot of funny people in town today. So, snapped Mrs. Dursley. Well, I just thought maybe it was something to do with, you know, her a lot. Mrs. Dursley sipped her tea through pursed lips. Mr. Dursley wondered who, whether he dared tell her he'd heard the name Potter. He decided he didn't dare. Instead, he said, as casually as he could, their son. He'd be about to dud his face now, wouldn't he? I suppose so, said Mrs. Dursley stiffly. What's his name again? Howard, isn't it? How? Nasty, common name, if you ask me. Oh, yes. Yes, I quite agree. Said Mr. Dursley, his heart sinking horribly. He didn't say another word on the subject as they went upstairs to bed. While Mrs. Dursley was in the bathroom, Mr. Dursley crept to the bedroom window and peered down into the front garden. The cat was still there. It was staring down at Puzzick's eyes as though it was waiting for something. Was he imagining things? Could all this have anything to do with the Potters? If it did, it got out that they were related to the Carols. <sighs> he didn't think he could bear it. The Dursley got, got into bed. Mrs. Dursley fell asleep quickly, but Mr. Dursley lay awake, turning it all over in his mind. His last comforting thought before he fell asleep was that even in the Potters were involved, there was no reason for them to come near him and Mrs. Dursley. The Potters knew very well what he and Petunia thought about them and their cows. He couldn't see how he and Petunia could get mixed up in anything that might be going on. He yawned and turned over. It couldn't affect them. How very wrong he was. Mr. Dursley might have been drifting into an uneasy sleep. But the cat on the wall outside was showing no signs of sleepiness. It was sitting as still as a statue, its eyes fixed unblinkingly on the far corner of Puzzle's eyes. It didn't so much as quiver when a car door slammed on the next street. Nor when two owls swooped overhead. In fact, it was nearly midnight before the cat moved at all. A man appeared on the corner the cat had been watching appeared so suddenly and silently that he thought he had just popped out of the ground. The cat's tail twitched and its eyes narrowed. Anything like this man had ever been seen in Puzzle's eyes before. He was tall, thin and very old, judging by the silver of his hair and beard, which were both long enough to tuck into his belt. He was wearing long robes, a purple cloak, which swept the ground in high-heeled buckled boots. His blue eyes were light 
stripes and sparkling behind half-moon spectacles, and his nose was very long and crooked, as though it had been broken at least twice. This man's name was Elvis Dumbledore. Elvis Dumbledore didn't seem to realise that he had just arrived on a street where everything from his name to his boots was unwelcome. He was busy rummaging in his throat, looking for something. He did seem to realise he was being watched, because he looked up suddenly at the cat, which was still staring at him from the end of the street. For some reason, the sight of the cat seemed to amuse him. He chuckled and muttered, I should have known. He had found what he had been looking for in his inside pocket. It seemed to be a silver cigarette lighter. He flipped it open, held it up into the air, and clipped it. The nearest street light went out with a little pop. He flicked it again. The next light flickered into darkness. Twelve times he clipped the put-outer, until the only lights left in the whole street were two tiny pinpricks in the distance, which were the eyes of the cat watching him. If anyone looked out of their window now, even beady-eyed Mrs. Dursley doesn't have been able to see anything that was happening down the pavement. Dumbledore slipped the put-outer back inside his cloak and set off down the street towards number four, where he sat down on the wall next to the cat. He didn't look it, but after a moment he spoke to it. Fancy seeing you here, Professor McGonagall. He turned to smile at the cabby, but he had gone. Instead, he was smiling at a rather severe-looking woman, who was wearing small glasses exactly the shape of the markings the cat had around its eyes. She, too, was wearing a cloak, an emerald one. Her black hair was drawn into a tight bun. She looked distinctly ruffled. How did you know it was me? My dear professor, I've never seen a cat look so stiff and You'd be stiff if you'd been sitting on a brick wall all day, said Professor McGonagall. All day, when you could have been celebrating, I must have passed a dozen feasting parties on my way here. Professor McGonagall sniffed angrily. Oh yes, everyone's celebrating, all right, she said impatiently. You'd think they'd be a bit more careful, but no. Even the muggles have noticed something's going on. It was on their knees. She jerked her head back at the Dursley's dark living room window. I heard it. Flocks of owls, shooting stars. Well, we're not completely stupid. You're bound to notice something. Shooting stars down in Kent. I'll bet that was Theodore Spiggy. He never did have much sense. You can't blame them, said Dumbledore gently. We've had precious little to celebrate for eleven years. I know that, said Professor McGonagall irritably. But that's no reason to lose our heads. People are being downright careless, out on the streets in broad daylight, not even dressed in muggle clothes, spotting rumours. She threw a sharp, sideways glance at Dumbledore here, as if he was hoping he was going to tell her something. But he didn't, so she went on. A fine thing it would be if, on the very day you know who seems to have disappeared at last, 
the muggles found out about it all. I suppose you really have gone, Dumbledore. It certainly seems so, said Dumbledore. We have much to be thankful for. Would you care for a sherbet and lemon? A what? A sherbet and lemon? It's a kind of muggle sweet I'm rather fond of. No, thank you, said Professor McGonagall coldly, as though she didn't think this was the moment for sherbet lemons. As I say, even if you know who has gone, my dear Professor, surely a sensible person like yourself can call him by his name? All this you-know-who nonsense? For eleven years I've been trying to persuade people to call him by his proper name. Voldemort. Professor McGonagall flinched, but Dumbledore, who was unsticking two Sherlock lemons, seemed not to notice. It all gets so confusing if we keep saying you-know-who. I have never seen any reason to be frightened of saying Voldemort's name. I know you haven't, said Professor McGonagall, standing half exasperated, half admiring. But you're different. Everyone knows you're the only one you know who, well, all right, Voldemort was frightened of. You flatter me, said Dumbledore calmly. Voldemort had powers I will never have. Only because you're too, well, noble to use them. Slippy it's dark. I haven't blushed so much since Madame Pomfrey told me she liked my new earmuffs. Professor McGonagall shot a sharp look at Dumbledore and said, Sir Alvin listened to the rumours that are flying around. You know what everything everyone's saying? About why he's disappeared? About what finally stopped him? It seems that Professor McGonagall had reached the point she was most anxious to discuss. The real reason she'd been waiting on a cold hard wall all day, and neither as a cat nor as a woman had she fixed Dumbledore with such a piercing stare as she did now. It was plain that whatever everyone was saying, she wasn't going to believe it until Dumbledore told her it was true. Dumbledore, however, was choosing another sherbet lemon and did not answer. What they're saying, she pressed on, is that last night Dumbledore turned up in Godric's Hollow. He went to find the Potters. The rumour is that Lily and James Potter are... are... that they're... Dead. Dumbledore bowed his head. Professor McGonagall gasped. Lillian James? I can't believe it. I didn't want to believe it. Oh, Albus. Dumbledore reached out and patted her on the shoulder. I know. I know, he said heavily. Professor McGonagall's voice trembled as she went on. That's not all. They're saying he tried to kill the Potter's son, Harry, but he couldn't. He couldn't kill that little boy. No one knows why or how, but they're saying that when he couldn't kill Harry Potter, Voldemort's power somehow broke and... And that's why he's gone. Dumbledore nodded glumly. It's... it's true? After all he's done? All the people he's killed? 
he couldn't let it kill a little boy? It's just astounding of all the things to stop him. But how in the name of heaven did Harry survive? We can only guess, said Dumbledore. We may never know. Professor McGonagall pulled out a lace handkerchief and dabbed at her eyes beneath her spectacles. Dumbledore gave a great sniff as he took a golden watch from his pocket and examined it. It was a very odd watch. It had twelve hands, but no numbers. Instead, little planets were moving around the edge. It must have made sense to Dumbledore, though, because he put it back in his pocket and said, Hagrid's right. I suppose it was he who told you I'd be here, by the way. Yes, said Professor McGonagall. And I don't suppose you're going to tell me why you're here, of all places. I've come to bring Harry to his aunt and uncle. They're the only family he has left now. You don't mean... You can't mean the people who live here? Cried Professor McGonagall, jumping to his feet and pointing at Dumbledore. Dumbledore, you can't. I've been watching them all day. You couldn't find two people who are less like it. And they've got this son. I saw him kicking his mother all the way up the street. Screaming for sweets. Harry Potter, come and live here. It's the best place for him, said Dumbledore firmly. His aunt and uncle will be able to explain everything to him when he's older. I've written them a letter. A letter? Repeated Professor McGonagall faintly, sticking back down the wall. Really, Dumbledore, you think you can explain all this in a letter? These people will never understand him. He'll be famous. A legend. I wouldn't be surprised if today was known as Harry Potter Day in the future. There'll be books written about Harry. Every child in our world will know his name. Exactly, said Dumbledore, looking very seriously over the top of his half-moon glasses. It would be enough to turn any boy's head. Famous before he can walk and talk. Famous for something he wouldn't even remember. Can you see how much better off he'll be? Growing up away from all of that until he's ready to take it. Professor McGonagall opened her mouth. Changed her mind, swallowed and then said, Yes, yes. Of course. You're right. But how is the boy getting here, Dumbledore? She eyed the cloak suddenly, as though she thought he might be hiding Harry underneath it. Hagrid's bringing him. You think it wise to trust Hagrid with something as important as this? I would trust Hagrid with my life, said Dumbledore. I'm not saying that his heart isn't in the right place, said Professor McGonagall, grudgingly. But you can't pretend he's not careless. He does tend to... What was that? A low, rumbling sound had broken the silence around them. It grew steadily louder as they looked up and down the street for some sign of the headlight. It swelled to a roar as they both looked up at the sky. And a huge motorbike fell out of the air and landed on the road 
in front of him. If the motorbike was huge, it was nothing to the man sitting astride it. He was almost twice as tall as a normal man, and at least five times as wide. He looked simply too big to be allowed, and so wild. Long tangles of bushy black hair and beard hit most of his face. He had hands the size of dustbin lids, and his feet in leather boots were like baby dolphins. In his vast muscular arms, he was holding a bundle of blankets. Hagrid, said Dumbledore, sounding relieved. At last. And where did you get that motorbike? Borrowed it. Professor Dumbledore, sir, said the giant, climbing carefully off the motorbike as he spoke. Young Sirius Black lent me it. I've got him, sir. No problems, were there? No, sir. House was almost destroyed, but I got an outlaw right before the muggles started swarming round. He fell asleep as we were we was flying over Bristol. Dumbledore and Professor McGonagall bent forward into the bundle of blankets. Inside, just visible, was a baby boy fast asleep. Under a tuft of jet black hair over his forehead, they could see a curiously shaped cut, like a bolt of lightning. Is that where? Yes. He'll have that scar forever. Couldn't you do something about it, Dumbledore? Even if I could, I wouldn't, said Dumbledore. Scars can come in useful. I have one myself above my left knee, which is a perfect map of the London Underground. Well, give him here, Hagrid. We'd better get this over with. Dumbledore took Harry in his arms and turned towards the Dursley's house. Could I... Could I say goodbye to him, sir? asked Hagrid. He bent his great shaggy head over Harry and gave him what must have been a very scratchy, whiskery kiss. Then suddenly, Hagrid let out a howl like a wounded dog. Shh! hissed Professor McGonagall. You'll wake the muggles! Sorry. Said, sobbed Hagrid, taking out a large spotted handkerchief and burying his face in it. But I can't stand it. Lily and James dead, and poor little Harry off to live with muggles. Yes, yes, it's all very sad. But get a grip on yourself, Hagrid, or we'll be found, Professor McGonagall whispered, patting Hagrid gingerly on the arm as Dumbledore stepped over the low garden wall and walked to the front door. He laid Harry gently on the doorstep, took a letter out of his cloak, tucked it inside Harry's blankets, and then came back to the other two. For four minutes, the three of them stood and looked at the little bundle. Hagrid's shoulders shook. Professor McGonagall blinked furiously, and the twinkling light that usually shone from Dumbledore's eyes seemed to have gone out. Well, said Dumbledore finally, that's that. We've no business staying here. We may as well go and join the celebration. Yes, said Hagrid in a very muffled voice. I'd best get this bike away. Good night, Professor McGonagall. Professor Dumbledore, sir. Wiping his streaming eyes on his jacket sleeve, Hagrid swung himself on the motorbike and kicked the engine into life. 
With a roar, it rose into the air and off into the night. I shall see you soon, I expect, Professor McGonagall, said Dumbledore, nodding to her. Professor McGonagall blew her nose in reply. Dumbledore turned and walked back down the street. On the corner, he stopped and took out the silver put outer. He clicked it once and twelve balls of light sped back to their street lamp so fast so that Privet Drive glowed suddenly orange and he could make out a tabby cat blinking round the corner at the other end of the street. He could just see the bundle of blankets on the step of number four. Good luck, Harry, he murmured. He turned on his heel and with a swish of his cloak he was gone. A breeze ruffled the neat hedges of Privet Drive. It lay silent and tidy under the inky sky, the very last place you'd expect something astonishing to happen. Harry felt it rolled over inside his blankets without waking up. One small hand closed on the letter beside him and he slept on, not knowing he was special, not knowing he was famous, not knowing he would be woken in a few hours' time by Mrs Dursley's scream as she opened the front door to put out the milk bottles, nor that he would spend the next few weeks being prodded and pinched by his prison Dudley. He couldn't know that at this very moment people were meeting in secret all over the country, were holding up their glasses and saying in hushed voices to Harry Potter, the boy who lived. Thank you. I hope you enjoyed the first chapter of Harry Potter and the Philosopher's Stone, the boy who lived, and I hope you'll join me again for chapter two. Thank you and good night.